Well, anyways, open up to Matthew chapter 27 with me this morning. Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be in verses 32 through 56. Matthew 27, 32 through 56. In chapter 27, uh, we've seen the trial and the humiliation of Jesus before the Jewish leaders. That's where we are. We're at the crucifixion of the Lord right now. And on his way to the cross, uh, Jesus was humiliated by the Jewish and the Roman leaders there. Um, and we left off with Pilate, the governor of the region of Jerusalem or in Judea, which Jerusalem is. Uh, we left off with Pilate reluctantly delivering Jesus to the cross. And I don't want to give him any like credit. He's a cruel man. Um, and he's, he was definitely a politician, but he was trying to not do this because he knew Jesus was innocent. And, um, but nevertheless, he did acquiesce yielding to the masses of people swayed by the Jewish Jewish leaders. But in verse 22 of chapter 27, Pilate is conversing with the crowd saying, then what shall we do with Jesus who is called Christ or who's called your Messiah? And they said, and they said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And so the crowds now are riled up in the morning and, and they're crying out to crucify Jesus. Remember the choices between Barabbas and Jesus. That's, I'm not going to go back over the last chapter, but we left off in verses 26 through 31, which describes for us the humili humiliation that Jesus experienced at the hands of his Roman executioners. I, I think, you know, the human heart is, is something that has the potential for such great evil, such horrible atrocities. We've seen that over the last hundred years. Um, you know, World War II, just the brutality of, of, of humanity, uh, especially the atrocities you know, that happened in Nazi Germany and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we see here uh, just how calloused men can be, how hard-hearted men can be, how brutal men can be, how we can take delight in evil to an extreme to where we don't even put a second thought to it. This is what's in the heart of of humanity. And these Roman executioners were professionals. This is what they did for a living. They were crucifying people day after day after day after day. And so you can imagine there's a toll that gets taken on someone for doing those kinds of things for that long for an extended period. And you get pretty good at it. And that's what we saw. And the first thing that happened to Jesus in verse 26 is that he was scourged. And as many of you already know, this is this was severe Roman brutality. It was basically Roman brutality perfected. Um, the scourging would also have been done by soldiers who had been doing this regularly. I already mentioned that. But these people were very brutal and callous individuals. Um, and we see their darkness in these verses. As they scourged Jesus, it doesn't really talk much about it in Matthew. It just says he was scourged. But the scourging that Jesus had would have been, he would have been stripped naked or his back would have been exposed. And uh, a Roman soldier would have used a, a, a flagrum or a flagellum uh, to whip him, which was basically a short-handled whip. And they've got pictures and ancient artifacts of these things. And it would ha usually have like two or three strand, long strands of leather coming off of it and tied with by knots into those leather would be pieces of metal, pieces of bone, whatever it might be, where it were attached to um, 
to those ropes connected to the handle. The loader strips were knotted with all those things. And the purpose obviously was to remove skin quickly, to rip someone to shreds. And the Jews, if we know the Jews under their law, they had a limit um, to how much they could uh, scourge someone. Now, I don't know whether or not these that method or just it was a whipping or whatever it might have been. But they had the 39 lashes, like the 40 minus one type of thing. And I think I can't remember if Jesus, that's what he had, I think. I think they might have acquiesced to the Jews. I'm not sure what it says there. But the the thing is, the Romans, they didn't have those limitations on um, on how much they could um, hurt someone uh, with this scourging. The purpose of the scourging was before execution in particular was uh, to bring the person close to death. They often called it the half death. The idea is they didn't want them to spend much time on the cross hanging around because they had other people they needed to kill. So they wanted to make them half dead before they got up there so they weren't going to last long. And obviously the lacerations to the back. I mean, you know, Merry Christmas, everybody. Sorry about this. I always, you know, um, but this is why Jesus came. We always look at the baby and um, we look at the, you know, the sweetness of it. And there is a sweetness to it, but Jesus was, he came to die. He came to testify of the truth and the world hates the light and it ripped him apart. That's what it did. It was humanity's focused hatred of the light. And they, they took that whip and they whipped him and shredded him to shreds in the back. And they would go around sometimes and wrap and people would lose eyes. Organs would be exposed. I mean, this was pretty this was brutal stuff. They didn't want them last long on the, on the cross. And so they scourged him until the Roman centurion overseeing it would see that they're close to death. And they would say, okay, that's enough. Let's hold. Now we can go nail him to a cross. And so Jesus would have experienced uh, some form of this deep lacerations. And it's in this state in verse 27 says, and the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. So after he's been scourged and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and putting and put a reed in his hand and kneeling before him. They mocked him saying, hail King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. So Jesus was subjected to shame, which Hebrews says he despised. Can you imagine having been whipped half dead? And then you've got a whole Roman battalion stripping you naked. And they put a, a, a robe on you to mock you as a king. They put a crown of thorns pressed into your head. You're already bleeding. You're already in shock. And they start mocking you, spitting you on you and hitting you. And you are the, you are the son of God with all power and all authority. What restraint? What restraint? And can you imagine having that scarlet robe put on your wounds and then pulled off? Such pain. And it's at this point that the soldiers, uh, when they did this, John 19 tells us, Matthew just summarizes kind of what happens. He just says he was handed over to Pilate to be crucified. They did this and then they went out and crucified him. But John kind of tells you more of the story. It's at this point after they've scourged him and have ripped him apart and put his crown on and put the rub, then Pilate drags him back out before the Jews and say, Hey, you know, is, 
you know, here's your king. What shall we do with him? He's trying to say, look, look how badly I've, isn't this enough penalty for this guy? We've mocked him. We've destroyed him. We've hurt him. All those types of things. What shall we do now? And they would not relent. They said, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so Pilate gives in and back to verse 31 of Matthew 27. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified, which would have been his tunic. And so they, as we pick up in verse 32 this morning, it says, as they went out, they found a man of uh, of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And this tells us that Jesus was unable to carry the cross beam that they would lead out to the pole that they would nail him to and then lift him up on. He was so weak. He could not carry the cross beam. He was half dead. And so this man, Simon from Cyrene, he's in, he's, which is from North Africa, where there's a big Jewish population, is uh, conscripted by a soldier to carry the crossbeam. Simon's mentioned in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And uh, it tells in Mark 15, 21, tells us that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so Mark wrote his gospel in Rome. And so people in Rome knew the sons and actually the mom of this man, Simon. So they knew Simon's mom and they knew his two sons. Apparently this experience changed him. He came to the Lord and so did his kids and his wife. And Paul in Romans 16, when he's saying hello to everybody, he says, Hey, say hello to Rufus. And he commends him. And he says also his mom, which would have been Simon's wife, who has helped me and ministered to me in my ministry. And so this moment changed this man. He's mentioned in all three gospels, I think, because everybody knows him. Pretty amazing stuff. And so a Roman soldier was able to compel anyone to carry a burden for a mile or a mile, whatever, you know, American mile, let's just call it that. And this is why Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 5, 41. He says, hey, if someone tells you to go one mile, do what? Go to opportunity to witness. Oh, well, my right is just one. I don't want to carry this and this and that. So Simon got conscripted to be pulled to carry Jesus's cross. And here he is just visiting Jerusalem, probably as a Jew. And, and he just gets yanked into this thing divinely. So Simon picks up what have, would have been the cross beam for Jesus and carries it to the place of his execution. And verse 33 says, and when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink. Jesus said, I won't drink of this until I enter the kingdom. So um, we don't know if this is a taunting thing, like that it was mixed with something bad, or if it was a, a sympathy thing, like to help with pain. There's different things. I don't know. Wine mixed with gall. But the place of the execution outside of the city was called Golgotha, the place of the skull, which is also translated Calvary. I come from Calvary Chapel, Skull Chapel. So that should tell you something. But we always have Calvary. Now, when you go to Jerusalem, there's a few sites that archaeologists point to as being uh, that could be the actual site. One of them is called, um, I think, Gordon's Calvary. And it's kind of outside the it's right. These are all right, right in the city proper, but just right, right outside the city there. And it's right by a highway, like a bus stop. And it, and the, the rock 
formation looks like a skull if you look at it. And so some people think, hey, that might be it. But the traditional site is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, there in, in Jerusalem. And usually what happened is when there was something significant that happened in church history, they built a church over it. They did that with Peter's house. They did that. Um, here and other places like in Bethlehem. And so most likely it's that, but we, we don't know where it was, but you know, if you notice our little card that I, I had here that we want to give share with people um, and it has the manger, which is cool. And it has this nice sloping hill with a sunset behind it and three crosses on it. Um, no, sorry. It's false advertisement that it was like a, it was by a city highway. Probably it was very public. Romans wanted everybody to see what was going on. It was not scenic. It was brutal. It was called the place of the skull, which meant what? Like death, right? That's the idea behind it. Whether it was shaped like a skull, I don't know, but it was a place where they killed people. That's what was going on. And so Jesus probably would have been crucified by a busy highway because we see here that there are passerbys as you read these things. There's people walking by. So it seems like this was a public place. And so most likely it was a main road. It's interesting, uh, you know, that you can go into where all these places are. And I would encourage you to have fun doing that in history. But the point is, is that 2000 years earlier, I think, was it 2000 years earlier, Abraham? brought his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and was about to bring the knife down on his son in obedience where the Lord had told him, bring your son, your only son whom you love to the place, which I will show you and you will sacrifice him there. And Isaac obediently follows his father up the hill, probably being 30 something years old, has the wood on his back and the father's about to bring down the knife and as he does in a faith and obedience, and we know from Hebrews that Abraham said he must, like he's the promised one. God will have to raise him from the dead. He believed in the resurrection. So I'm going to obey God. Seems crazy. But anyways, he goes to do it and God stops him. Angel of the Lord stops him and says, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And there was a ram caught in a thicket. Well, here we are 2000 years later. And that picture is now fulfilled. The father and the son in that spot, wherever that was. And the father is going to bring down the knife on his son. It was called the place of the skull. And it was there that they would stretch out Jesus' arm on that crossbar and drive those large nails through his palms and then through his feet. And then he would be lifted up to hang and die through blood loss and suffocation was the Romans intent. We know Jesus knew what kind of death he would have. He prophesied it is prophesied in Psalm 22 in the old Testament over and over in John three 16. We know that for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten, forgotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but we'll have everlasting life. But the verses before that says that the son of man must be lifted up. If he's lifted up, he would draw all men to himself, just like the serpent in the wilderness. says that picture Jesus knew he was headed towards the cross the whole time. And so what would happen with crucifixion, as you know, is that you'd be crucified. You'd be 
brought up and, and I, I guess the way people describe it is that, um, the historians describe it as the only way that you would be able to breathe really is to push up when you have your, on your nailed feet to gap, to get air. And eventually you would just go into cardiac arrest or succumb to lack of oxygen. You just, it'd be too much. And so verse 35, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Here's Jesus is hanging on the cross and, and he's watching them gamble and divide his clothes in front of him as he's looking down. And they sat down, verse 36, and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read Jesus. I'm sorry, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And so as Jesus is hanging there, they're dividing up his clothes, which is a fulfillment of prophecy, which we'll read about in a bit. And they left his tunic in one piece. They didn't tear that up because it was of greater value. And so they gambled for that. They kept, well, they, they cast lots. And the sign that was written above him was that this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And so when someone was crucified, their sentence would be put above their head. So everybody would know, don't mess with Rome. This is what happens if you are associated with this kind of thing. Well, Pilate and the Jews argued because Pilate said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And the Jews didn't like that. They said, no, say he said he's the King of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Tough luck. And it was written in Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin popped up there. And some thinks it is the uh, acronym for uh, the name of God. Um, but you can search that yourself. But verse 28, then the two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And, and those who passed by were deriding him and wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. And so here Jesus is surrounded and being mocked and humiliated as he is just in an incredible agony on the cross by people passing by, by the soldiers, by uh, those people, the leaders of Israel, even the robbers next to him who are dying are mocking him. We know one of them repents as, as the time unfolds here in the next six hours. They're all saying the same kinds of things. If you are really the son of God, save yourself. Show us your power. Why don't you do something? Get down. If you're really God, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself. Now, who does that sound like? Does that remind you of anyone? If you're a student of scripture, you're starting to go back to the temptations of Christ in your mind. Matthew 4, 3 through 9. I think Marcus might have mentioned that we were there like 10 years ago. Thank you, Marcus. <laughs> Actually, it was May 20, 
Yeah, 22. Yeah. Mark, Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 3 through 9. Listen to this. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, What? It is written, Man shall not live by bread, by bread uh, alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You're hungry. Here you are starving. Why are you doing that? You have all this power. Feed yourself. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of a temple and said, um, did I skip over something? No, no, no. Yeah, pinnacle of the temple and said, said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Notice there, Satan is quoting scripture at the, at the Lord. Notice these people are referencing scripture as they are talking to the Lord on the cross. If you are the son of God, you know, if all these things are true, then what? Save yourself, come down, then God will delight in you. And they're quoting from the Psalms there. But the Lord answers the enemy and says on there, uh, he says, Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things will be given to you. If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written. And he goes on. Shall worship the Lord, your God only in him. shall you serve, right? It's always about self. That's the voice of the enemy. It's about self. And, and now that Jesus is on the cross, Satan's puppets are speaking. There is a spiritual warfare going on behind the scenes that really isn't drawn out, but we know is there because his voice, his stink is coming through, through the people around. If you're the son of God, save yourself. And this is what the enemy tells you. Save yourself. Self-preservation. Put yourself first. That's the voice of the enemy. Jesus knew these people, who they were serving and what they were saying and who they were saying it for. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 to 10, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of every evil in the heavenly places. Listen, these people are echoing their father to Jesus on the cross. And Jesus looks at, he knows what's going on. Nevertheless, his will be done. His will be done. His will be done. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the day of witness. The, the enemy's schemes are always to get you to deny the will of God and to roll into self. That's what he does because that's who he is. He's a usurper. He always desires to elevate self. That's who he is. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the devil, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Jesus stood strong in the evil day. The spiritual warfare was raging, right? 
He stayed true to the father's will. You know, if you walk in the Lord for a bit, you begin to distinguish the Lord's voice from the enemy's voice. You begin to know my sheep hear my voice. We begin to hear his voice and we begin to hear the enemy's voice. The enemy is always telling you what is contrary to the father's will. It's always to attack someone, cut someone down, build yourself up. It's always to take the position of authority. It's always to take the position that's over or power or some kind of twisted version of that where the attention is drawn to you, even if you're the weakest, but you do it in such a way where everybody looks at you. This is, he just, he plays on our sinfulness. That's how he is. But the voice of the father says, my will, my way. It's through the cross. It's through the death of self that you find life. That's where you find life. That's where you get lifted up. That's where you're exalted after you identify with me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And I now live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the life of a Christian. We walk by faith now. But Jesus was in the throes of death and the enemy with all he could muster was ridiculing him to get, he was ridiculing Jesus' resolve. But verse 45, this is now from the sixth hour. There was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. So the crucifixion began right around 9 a.m. And so the darkness was over the land from 12 to 3. That's what's going on there. So from 9 to 3 o'clock, basically, is the time Jesus was on the cross. This was a supernatural darkness that was happening for three hours there. The judgment of God upon sin was being poured out upon the Son of God. Verse 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out. We know there's a lot of other things that were said on the cross, but Matthew cuts to the point. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here's the cup that Jesus was weeping about with tears as if great drops of blood the night before the cup where he said, nevertheless, I don't want to do it if there's any other way. But nevertheless, your will be done. And so the innocent son of God becoming sin, experiencing the wrath of his father on behalf of all of us who would believe Jesus encapsulates everything in that moment with that cry. My father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that you and I would not be. He was treated as if he was us, so that we could be treated as if we were him. That's the reason for the season. Turn with me to Psalm 22, please. King David penned this a thousand years before the cross. And it gives us insight into what Jesus was experiencing on the cross. You know, we kind of look up and, and think of the picture of the cross from our perspective, maybe one of the disciples. But here's a picture looking down. 
Psalm 22, a prophetic psalm. 1,000 years before the cross. It begins, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus links us to this on purpose. It's a fulfillment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and in you our fathers trusted, and they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. How so? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. This is stunning prophecy. This is a thousand years before Christ. It's as if a script is written and they're reading off of it. This is why people go, it was written after the fact, because it is that accurate. The problem is, you hit the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a lot of other things. This is fulfillment of prophecy. This is exactly what happened. Why in the world would these people down there say these things? Look at this. Verse 9, and yet... You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you, my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. This is Jesus from a tender age. He's been his. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. He's crying out in this moment. And many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me, a symbol of his enemies. They all surround me. They open wide their mouths at me. These would have been like the leaders of Israel. They're standing and, and scoffing him, scoffing at him like a raving and roaring lion. And here's what Jesus is experiencing. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast and my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. Gentiles encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. the cross a thousand years before the cross. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me and they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. 
And Jesus goes on and talks about, actually, you have saved me. And this goes into the resurrection. But Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, back in Matthew. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. It could be that Eli, Eli, because Eli is, is the name of God. They could have been mistaken that he's talking to Elijah. This man's calling Elijah. No, he's actually calling out to God. My God, my God. He's quoting scripture. It's, quote, it's calling to his father. Verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. So uh, a thought that the forerunner would come. So their theology is all mixed up. They're, they're not trusting and they're, they're, what's going on? You know, there's just a bunch of weird stuff happening is the point. So there's a group of people watching Jesus. Much more is said in the other gospels. We know that a centurion is watching. We'll see about him in just a second. And he's convicted. We know that one of the thieves repents and believes. Matthew doesn't talk about that. We know that the Lord cries out seven times on the cross. Not much of that is mentioned here in Matthew. There's so much more. A lot's going on. As everyone is gathered around, you've got Mary, his mom is right there with John and a lot of the women, which Matthew will mention here in a moment. And the sky is darkened. And finally, verse 50, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We know they said, Father, into your hands, I commit my, commend my spirit. Notice that Jesus gave up his spirit. John 10, 18, well, verse 17 through 18 says, For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. No one took Jesus's life from him. He gave up his spirit. He willingly subjected himself to all of this. Nailed on a tree on a hill in which he made. And here Jesus gives up his spirit by his own will. And at that moment, verse 51, and behold, this, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, not from man, but from top to bottom, from God to man. And the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were also open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep or had died were raised and, and coming out of the tombs, <clears throat> excuse me, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, those who were with him, kept watching over Jesus, saw an earthquake, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Whoa. And so supernatural signs came with the, uh, the death of Jesus on the cross. A couple of them. First, 
the temp the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to bottom. We know that within the temple is the Holy of Holies where God's spirit dwelt. And there was a curtain that separated everybody from that. Like there were layers, right? There was access points, high security, basically common Gentiles way out here. Then you had the court of the women and the, you know, the Gentiles basically then you, the Jews. And then you had the priests who could only be in the, the temple proper. And then there's the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the covenant was, which only the high priest could enter in once a year, but not without blood. And it was on the day of atonement. So there was no, and they would tie a thing around his foot in case he died so they could yank him out. But that he, he could only go past that curtain once a year. There's a separation between a holy God and sinful men. Does that make sense? No, you just can't run into the White House and pop your feet up on the chair. I'm not saying it's a holy God. I'm just trying to give you. God is so holy that no flesh shall dwell in his presence. There's just instant death and wrath and all those things for us. And so how does a God who loves and yet it's just make a way where we can enter into his presence. Jesus Christ, where the wrath and the justice of God and the love of God met and his son died and his blood was shed. The innocent, not the guilty, not all of us guilty people dying for one another, the innocent one of us, the only innocent one of us dying for us. And that's an amazing thing there. Upon Jesus's death, the veil was torn from top to bottom. We know from Hebrews, the veil was a shadow of a spiritual reality that no one could come to God because of our, our sins separated us. But Jesus made the way by dying on the cross. His blood made the way. This is Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. You want, you'll want to write that down for future reference. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, what holy place? The holy place in his presence. By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, high priest of the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart full of assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus's body was torn that you might enter through him. That's the imagery there. It's the only way when we draw near to God through faith in Christ and accompanying the torn veil was the great earthquake. So the whole place shook. And there was a local resurrection of some sort. I don't know. This is where I just go. A lot of people speculate about it, but you read what happened. I don't understand the significance of it other than, whoa, that's weird. And there's a lot of signs happening. There was something significant that happened. Some people say, well, that was, you know, people moving from one, from their holding cell into, and now they were able to go into the presence of God. So there was a resurrection there, but what where are all the resurrections in scripture? How do those, all those square out? I don't know. Learning, still learning. Anyone else still learning? So those of you who have the answer, I'm, I'm thankful for you. Nevertheless, the centurion is looking on the one who was overseeing his crucifixion, the ones who were gambling for his stuff. And they all said, truly, this is the son of God mocking one minute 
But when they saw it, they said, whoop, whoa. I think we're going to see that guy. I think he's a brother. That would be cool. I'll pray we see him in glory. Verse 55. And there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. And so you have a lot. You, you, have, you love this. You have to love this. Jesus mentioned, uh, Mark mentions all the women from the mother of Jesus to James and John's mom to there's Mary Magdalene. There's a lot of other ladies there. He doesn't mention John. John is there. The faithful women of God who served behind the scenes. All the disciples get all the light, don't they? But who is taking care of Jesus the whole time? Who's ministering to him behind the scenes the whole time? It's these women who love him. These women who love him and they hold a special place in his heart. And, they, and you ladies hold a special place in our heart. You're doing so much behind the scenes to minister to us and to the Lord. We love you. Thankful for you. Of how you love the Lord and you love his sheep. Thank you to each one of you. But here, the faithful women of God serve Jesus through his ministry. And notice who's not at the cross and notice who is at the cross. All the boys scatter. And all the ladies are there. Some things don't change. Boy, there's this whole sermon in there, isn't there? Come on, guys. What's going on, man? Ladies, toe in the line always. Praise the Lord for you, sisters. Amen. Don't get don't don't get prideful. Just be thankful, right? But John's there. Let me say also that they're going to be the first to see Jesus raised from the dead. Pretty cool. I love it, which we'll get to next week. But as we close, I want to read Isaiah 53. I know this is a long one. But this is important. I'm just going to read it for you. Isaiah 53 and we'll close in prayer. And then Marcus will have an announcement afterwards. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root of, out of dry ground. He has no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one for whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem and surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. 
And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And through the Lord, make his life a sin, an offering for sin. Uh, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And now we're getting to the resurrection. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 700 something years before Christ. Lord God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to the cross for me and for us. Our sin is great, but you've paid it all in full, thoroughly. There's no sin you can't cleanse. There's no one you can't bring close to your throne. If we would humble ourselves, confess our sin and believe in you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Lord bless you this week.